Hi everyone, this is Ben from Scrap Weapons, the strategic concept for the removal of arms and proliferation. And you're listening to our podcast, where we talk about a range of topics with experts and students involved in the disarmament space. Thank you very much for coming. <laughs> it's good to see you. <laughs> um, so, Thank Mona you for Lisa. having me. No, of course. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, before we get started, though, could you introduce yourself? Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, for sure. Uh, well, my name is Monalisa Hazarika. Monalisa, exactly like the painting. I get it a lot. I, is your name really Monalisa? It's just the word that you use. It, it's actually my name. <laughs> um, I am from Northeast India. Uh, and I say that for a very particular reason. I'll come back to it. Why I say India, not India and Northeast India. Uh, yes, I am an indigenous disarmament activist. Uh, I joined Scrap Weapons like two months back around November. And yeah, I have been having a great time ever since. Um, but yes, I recently got selected as one of the 25 leaders for tomorrow, which is a leadership training program under the Youth for Disarmament Initiative, which is basically an extension of the United Nations Office for Disarmament Affairs. Um, I'm also a master's student. I'm studying conflict management and development from Banaras Hindu University. And yeah, I'm also connected to the Emerging Voices Network of BASIC. And I recently, my project Nuclear Lives got selected uh, by the PACI Awards. And so I'm excited about that as well. Oh, that's super exciting. Yeah, we talked about it briefly and that's a really amazing thing. And to be selected as one of the 25 leaders uh, for tomorrow, that's really fantastic. I just want to roll back a little bit um, to the very basics of indigenous disarmament activist. What exactly does that mean? Can you explain that to me? Yes, I would love to. Um, I think there are many factors behind why I say I'm an indigenous disarmament activist. First of all, the indigenous rights movement and the disarmament movement are not really connected, connected as much as we would like to. Um, and so that's a thing that I particularly say, as soon as I say I'm from Northeast India, I also say I'm an indigenous disarmament activist because I am from one of the indigenous communities that is located in Northeast. I'm from the Coast Rasbongsi tribe. Uh, and also um, in just in a country or in our region in general, disarmament is not something which is talked about. So yes, to start off more like a conversation, I always say I'm from I'm an indigenous disarmament activist. Mm. Also sounds cool, I guess. But oh, it does. Yes. Yeah, uh, it does. But uh, on a more serious note, I mm. say this because there are um, so many movements going around. May that be the climate justice movement, the nuclear mm. disarmament, um, just so many of them going together. So we need to find like synergies between them and mm. show like connections of how. At the end, we're just trying to make a more peaceful world. So I, my work basically is trying to connect these two movements for indigenous rights and, of course, uh, conventional arms control and disarmament. Right, and right, right. Okay, I see. I mean, it certainly is an era of movements, right? And mm-hmm. I, I don't know if that's reflective of our time or reflective of general awareness or because people uh, as a society feel like they can finally come together and tackle that. But by the sounds of it, and as, as you said, your areas specifically, and you are uh, Northeast Indian, right? So can you tell us a little bit about that? Because you've kind of preluded to saying <laughs> I'm from Northeast India. So yeah, tell us a bit about that as well. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm just not sure where to start, like why I say Northeast India, right. because the term Northeast is, of course, um, a colonial construct. So mm. um, to just 
put it like very briefly, uh, we had a very different colonial experience when the British, uh, well, the Britishers came to mm. India. Uh, they basically had separate rules and regulations for our region, and it was, there was something called the Inner Line Regulation. So, Britishers knew that we are not just racially, but also like overall a very different group or communities and most of these uh, regions like present day states had their own kingdoms and they were never really part of what we see today as India. Mm -hmm. So there were independent kingdoms, there were rulers, there were kings and so to protect them by also maintaining their rule they created this inner line regulations. I think it was uh, initially started around um, 1873. Please don't quote me on that but I'm pretty sure it was around 1873. So it was an attempt to fence off the plantations uh, that they had and also cement their colonial rule. Uh, but this inner line was redrawn um, after the British was left. And so that has been a post-colonial legacy that has been maintained. Um, but yes, so initially what started off as the Northeastern Frontier Agency. So it was just one of the states. So uh, Northeast India has like seven states. So it's called like seven sisters and a brother, like okay. seven states and like Sikkim is so like eight states. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty interesting history of how it came, how such a directional name came about mm -hmm. and why we still keep on using it. Of course, initially it was more for like administrative convenience, but of course it has just continued. And I guess one of the reasons why it has still continued is because it's just an extension. The Northeast India is basically an extension of Southeast Asia. So racially and culturally, language, food, we are more connected to Southeast Asia than what is known as mainland India. And so I think if you ask any person from Northeast India, they would happily say that I am a Northeasterner mm. uh, in an attempt to actually reclaim the identity that has been imposed on us. Yeah. Interesting. I'm not sure if I answered your question, no, but you definitely did. yes. No, no, you did. And you've left me with more questions because, I mean, forgive me um, if I sound not knowledgeable or mm -hmm. anything regarding that. But from what you said, I mean, how how is that colonial past for you today then in Northeast India? Because I think generally in the rest of India, obviously the colonial past is, is, is neg very negatively viewed and for good reason, yes. of course. Right. Yes. Um, so in Northeast India, how, how is that generally viewed? and talked about today so uh, northeast india if you see the india's map it's it just connected to the mainland india with like a very narrow strip of land it's like 21 kilometers okay. and it's called the chicken neck so hence okay. my project also was like across the chicken neck so we're mm -hmm. talking about things across the chicken neck so it's like a metaphorical name that's been given uh, it's called the chicken neck and it just as soon as you cross the 21 kilometers of land strip it's like a completely different geography so it's mostly of hills rather than plains which is mainland so in terms of international borders the entire region is covered like surrounded by 98 percent of it is like international borders we share with Bhutan, china myanmar bangladesh and nepal uh i think in terms of experiences mm. um so Northeast India, it, like I said, it's make mostly hills and mm. uh, a lot of natural resources made out of uranium, coal, oil. So uh, 
actually the British has found the first traces of oil in India in my state, Assam. It's mm. a place called Digboy. So it's actually Digboy was actually Dig Boy, as in okay. the English word Dig and Boy. And it's, wow. uh, we just made it Dig Boy. And we're like, ah, oh, it's fine. We're not going to name it. So it's still Dig Boy. Interesting. <laughs> Change of accent. Uh, but yeah, that was the first place where they found oil. And right. I'm sure you have heard about Assam tea. It's like mm. very famous, like everywhere, Darjeeling tea and Assam tea yep. from my state. Uh, so I think the when you're talking about experiences, um, since they saw the tribal culture and the tribal heritage that we have, and also uh, in terms of um, the individual kingdoms and like separate, completely separate and completely unrelated uh, cultures that we had, they decided to keep the region separate, mm -hmm. respecting the cultures, uh, while also uh, when they needed workers for their plantation, this, of course, the tea plantations, they uh, imported these workers from the lower the lower caste, like we initially mentioned, the lower caste mm -hmm. from around like South India or like Orissa, Jharkhand. So they took these people from there and they were migrated to Assam to work on these plantations. But um, I think the experience we had was that apart from a few states like Assam and Tripura, most of the states were given autonomy. Their, mm. their practices and their heritage was respected. And we were left to be the way that we were mm. uh, because parts of Myanmar was also part of, uh, let's say, India. Mm. But of course, after the borders were redrawn, it became a separate country. And of course, a chunk of it came back to uh, Northeast India. So I think when it, it all comes down to the experiences and the difference in culture and how they respected it. So hence the inner line permit and the inner line regulation that was created because of that very reason. Because they knew if we tr they tried to meddle with these things, it'll just be a problem for them. So they tried to keep mainland Indians away from it. I yes, see. That's, that's okay. No, that, no, that definitely answers my question. And actually, it, it leaves me quite surprised because obviously it sounds like very, very different treatment indeed. And um, as you said, if, if it is, uh, well, we know it is a strategic location, especially today, but if there are so many resources up there, I'm quite surprised that England um, or the United Kingdom didn't pursue stricter reign over that region for their own benefit. Uh, but if they had the foresight to see how complex the area would have been and how it could have perhaps caused some issue down the road, maybe you know, in their own selfish way, they made the right choice there. It's very hard to say, but I, I do find that very mm -hmm. interesting. But in regards to like how it is a, strate a strategic location, um, how is that viewed today? Um, because obviously it's under the central government of, of India. And is it used? Is it abused? Is it, uh, what's it like today there in comparison? Oh, it's abused. Oh, it's definitely abused. it's abused. Right. It is. So the term Northeastner is actually like a racial slur. Okay. And I have been called Chinese, Nepali, like oh, multiple wow. times. I see. So now that I'm located in North India and I'm studying here. So the first question is, of course, I do speak Hindi, but of course with an accent mm. because it's not my mother tongue. I do I, I speak multiple languages. And of course, we have an accent in each of them because if then it's not your mother tongue, you will a little bit yeah. have an accent. Mm. So I was asked, are you Nepali? Are you from Nepal? Are you from I don't know. Are you from Northeast? Yeah, we have friends over there. We know Northeast. Mm. And that's the treatment that you know that they know nothing about the region. And uh, so we have been like clubbed together as Northeast. So this directional name 
is like clubbing together everything that we have. May that be like a food habit. So when I say that I don't like this particular food of North India, and I like this better, so like ah, you you may not get this food in Northeast, right? So mm. they view this as this completely different like outside entity. So this peripheral area, uh, they see this like a there's there's a sense of otherness, like us versus them. So it's like mainland India versus Northeast India, which of course should not be. We are part mm. of the same country. But that has just continued. And I think one of the main reason, uh, reasons why that has happened is, I'm not sure if you've heard, it's called AFSPA, the Armed Forces, Forces Special Powers Act. So that is a completely different ballgame if I start talking about it. So just you know, in a sentence, mm. I can say that this uh, actually, of course, was a British construct. Mm -hmm. um, it was, I think, introduced around the 1940s during the Quit India movement. Um, so this was again revamped by the present day Indian government and it grants like a special powers to the armed forces to maintain public order in said disturbed areas. I see. So mm. let's say once an a they decide to uh, call an area disturbed and like let me warn you, there's like a very casual treatment of it. They can declare any area, a part of a state, a district, whatever, uh, as a disturbed area. And so that they, these uh, armed forces, they have the right to kill anyone on grounds of even suspicion. So they can arrest, search your premises without a warrant. And of course, uh, they have legal immunity. You can't really take them to court. So any legal action against these officers for abusing those powers, uh, uh, request prior approval from central government, and it has never been successful. So this law has been put up in parts of northeast now every now and then since the 1960s i think mm -hmm. it was first started in 1958 with the start of insurgency movements in the region and it's still it's still applied in the region which is like crazy when i talk about human rights abuses mm -hmm. so yeah it's it's completely crazy to see how like a country gives a power to its like military to like make preventive arrests, search premises without warrants, and even shoot and kill civilians on site. And let me tell you that there are places in Northeast, like in the state of Manipur, where you can't really go step outside your house after 5 p.m. So you need special ID cards that I need to go to this place because of this reason. And it's it's a completely different, I guess, scenario that's been going on. And of course, it's not the case for all the places in northeast there are certain villages there are certain districts where this is more prominent but overall i think apspa has been the main reason for all of this okay i mean crazy is is it does sound crazy <laughs> i don't know it's very hard to react to. <laughs> i think it's a lot it's i know no no it's extreme uh, my question is i mean india is such a massive country of you know this massive population is this not really noted by a lot of people in mainland or is it noted and it's just not people don't really care about it is there no movement against this like this it sounds ridiculous that this is happening right now especially in a country like india right where always yeah. i'm seeing interviews about indian uh diplomacy and democracy and people trying to you know becoming like a next superpower and stuff like that but something like this is still happening uh, what is general reaction in mainland india to something like this it sounds crazy that something like that's still happening it, it does it it does um I think they just don't care and they got used to it because ASPA is 
has been imposed in regions of northeast and kashmir only in the country so the thing is wherever the government decides these areas are said disturbed the goats they just you know apply this rule and they're like we are done with it the military will take over even the civilian matters so there has been so many movements against afspa and not just by northeasters by mm. mainland indians as well in fact there is this amazing lady called iram sharmila who has been protesting against uh, the many cases of rape by the indian uh, military that were recorded but she has been battling with she has been protesting against this for for decades now but nothing has been done so it just shows how lightly these matters are taken when uh, like issues of when when we see like why is that happening i used to question it like why is people not taking enough interest in our region and why it's still going on it just they don't care it's not like outside world doesn't know about it i'm pretty sure um few years back in the 90s um a few of our politicians tried to bring this up to the un and mm. it just i'm not sure it was pretty ambiguous and it was very vague but nothing actually happened so it there's so many people from the region who are trying to bring this up uh, i know bina lakshmi nepram who is one of the indigenous women from manipur who has been trying to bring this topic a lot but nothing actually has been done on the ground level and yeah pretty much very vague and people from mainland india doesn't really they know about it we have read this in our school books but nothing is actually done i think it's portrayed in the way you perceive it the way it's been portrayed in um, national media is what's keeping it going i see okay well that's going to be my next question that you mentioned the united nations and that is the international attention uh is there much international attention regarding this or no no no, no, no. not that i know of and i'm i think it all comes down to the other issues that the region have of insurgency right separatist movement so ever since the independence of india so that it's since 1947 there has been so many insurgent groups and separatist movements where they either want autonomy within india uh, like respecting the rights respecting the territories and the native land or complete separation from india so um let's say for assam my state we have alpha which is the most active they operate from myanmar uh and uh, let's say from nagaland they have the nscn so it's a very long name i'm just using acronyms no, of course yeah so these so these uh groups they either want autonomy or they're fighting uh, against illegal migrants or over the resources which has been exploited mm. or for indigenous rights or having a separate country because most of like i said most of these territories they were independent kingdoms they were never really part of what we understand india so apart from uh, manipur and tripura most of them were just forcefully merged when the india was drawing its borders so it was just forcefully merged and so they never really accepted um these groups never really accepted india as um as a country and so those has been going on so hence this is where afspa comes into play 
And so it's been portrayed that AFSPA is very necessary in these particular regions because we are trying to keep these insurgent groups in check. And again, the insurgent groups does the same thing. They get weapons from China, mm. uh, drugs from Myanmar through the Golden Triangle because we are so closely located to the Golden Triangle. Drug is a big issue in Northeast India. And it's also like one of the gateway through which it can easily cross because we have such porous borders. You can't really say if you're like, let's say if you are in Manipur, you can't really in some areas, you can't really say if you're in India or if you're in Myanmar. So for these porous borders, it's been a very big issue because this also makes sense that there's a lot of illicit trafficking of humans, weapons, drugs, and the lot. So I think it all comes down to how the Indian government or how the world sees this issue. Is it an issue of insurgent movements? Is it an issue of human rights abuses? It is, an, is it an issue of, um, I don't know, just rights, I guess? So because of this, I don't know, these um, issues have been like sustaining itself in such like this durable disorder that due to its low intensity nature, they have never really like tried to never really reach that international level of concern. I see. Okay. I mean, it's everything called all of those though, right? It's, it, I mean, there's issues of human rights, obviously, and, and insurgency, I suppose, depending on perspectives. And it's all of those issues and combined into one. So it's, there's many angles with like thinking that you can use to really kind of address those. But I'm just surprised that the United Nations or more international attention isn't brought to this. I, to be honest, although saying that, I do think the West suffers from this idea, especially and we can see this recently with Ukraine in particular, that um, if it's an issue in Europe, it's a global problem. Um, but yeah. if it's not an issue outside of, if it's an issue outside of Europe, it's not a global problem. It's not a European problem, yeah. right? So I don't think it, a lot of these problems in a lot of these nations, you read, raised the, um, the Golden Triangle, which is a massive issue because they supply, they're the second largest producers of opiates for the world, right, after Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. um, and, but it's not really addressed. It's never, because it's not, it's not in Europe. So therefore it's not a global issue. And I, I think it sounds very much like um, it's the same. It's pretty much the same. So, yes. yeah. Okay, interesting. So as an indigenous disarmament activist then, what is your role in this? What, what are you, what is your part to play? Is it more bringing attention to the matter? Is it trying to propose potential solutions? How are you involved in this? Uh, right now, I am trying to read more about it, mm -hmm. learn more about it, because mm -hmm. I think there's a sense in people that if you're from the region, you, you'll know everything there is to know but that's not the case uh i am trying to just keep up with all the the academic words and publications and research that has been done in the region by not by not, not just by the people from the region but also from scholars outside the region I have shown immense interest in northeast so right now i'm just trying to compare these research work and understand like compare my understanding and what what and how they see northeast and also, in this sense, uh, the Leaders for Tomorrow program was very important for me because I um, I got to create a program that deals specifically with this problem with Northeast India. So it's called, like again, I feel like I'm promoting this 
but no, no, please please just saying, <laughs> i'm just saying that um the project is called across the chicken neck mm -hmm. uh, exploring the sam women from indigenous perspective because this i'm pretty sure this is not the case just in in india uh, course across every country and region which has indigenous population might also suffer, be suffering from the same thing so that be from africa south america north america it might be the same case so we need more research on it so i'm trying to like initiate this conversation this interest among people that how they should combine uh, these uh, different perspectives and different issues and trying to see uh, trying to bring in the sam women in this perspective and also i'm more i'm doing more i guess advocacy work right now so for the all the programs and all the projects that i've been involved in i'm i constantly try to bring this up that you need to learn about northeast and what's happening and this can't do this can't continue we have this has been the case for the past six decades so ever since our country got independence this has been the case with us we grew up in such a situation so we didn't we don't know any different so we think that having a military outside our door is normal which of course is not but growing up in such a region in such a situation from early childhood it does affect us in many many on many levels so right now what i'm doing is well uh, engaging in podcasts like this <laughs> right. um, also my project with uh, united nations uh, oda um, i'm also doing Uh, trying to record a documentary uh, of the victims of uranium mining, um, and yeah, I'm at this level. I'm just trying to do the research, advocacy, and just create more creative programs to engage more youth and just more scholars in the field. No, I mean that makes perfect sense. That really does make perfect sense. Um, okay, very nice. And with that said, then, what is your ideal kind of future pathway that you'd like to take? If you could see yourself in five, ten years, working on this. Where would you like to be? I know it's kind of a very generalist question, but I'm genuinely <laughs> yeah. curious because obviously you're very passionate about this, and for good yes. for good reason. Um, so I'm just very curious about where you would like to see yourself down the line. I really hope that I'm still working in the disarmament field, and uh, wherever I'm located, whatever I'm doing, I'll always uh, kind of try to relate it to my region and learn from my personal experiences. Uh, with whatever work that I'm engaged in, so uh, I won't say five. I, I I don't know where I'll be in ten years, but definitely for the next five years. Um, once I graduate university, I will probably start with more research work because I feel, um, apart from advocacy and engaging with youth at the grassroots level, you also need to make certain changes at the policy level, and that comes with extensive research. So probably conducting independent research, connecting with uh, professors and like researchers who have already done a lot. Um, there's so many, so many books that I need to read about the region and like so many myths to bust myself. Mm. So for the next five years, I think just unraveling and like exploring the region and not have my personal biases in the mix. So that's my problem. Okay, okay, okay. I see. No, well, that sounds very good. That sounds very, very good. I, you've mentioned Golden Triangle a couple of times, and in yeah. in combination with disarmament, I kind of want to ask you a yes. few questions there. So obviously the Golden Triangle, mm -hmm. Myanmar, Laos, Thailand, um, just to put yes. in perspective for some people who may be listening, um, it is Southeast Asia's primary opium production area. 
um, and mm -hmm. it's I think it's something ridiculous like a quarter of the world's opium comes out of that area which is absolutely massive and as I said earlier it's the second largest opium producer in the world after mm -hmm. Afghanistan it's so entwined into Myanmar's economy that it brings in about I think I can't remember the top of my head but one to two billion dollars it's the second largest yeah yes um, contributor to their economy despite it being outlawed in Myanmar in the 1960s um, now, obviously, this is a massive thing. And if we're talking about disarmament in Northeast India and reducing arms there, for example, uh, how do you mm -hmm. think that will affect kind of the Golden Triangle's influence in the area? Do you think that's it's a, a difficulty? Because I would assume, and, and may, once again, this is maybe coming out of an area of ignorance, but I think it's an important question to ask. If we see an increase in disarmament in that area, do you think we'll see an increase in presence of the Golden Triangle? Or do you think it, it's not as simple as that? I think it's actually not as simple as that because I say this, uh, the insurgent groups that we have, it's basically basically operates um, and gets its funding from um, these drug cartels. So there is this narco insurgency. It's not just insurgency. They also um, sell and abuse drugs. So, uh, of course, this is a very common question of who funds these groups. Is it the government? Is it... Uh, is it like a clash of governments or is it like an agency who's doing it like we see in movies right mm. so um i i recently found out that actually these insurgent groups have been running for so long because of the funding that they get from the drug cartels so they give them um support and so let's say the insurgent group i would not take names <laughs> will get their funding from drug cartel a and in turn they'll give them protection uh, to operate and maybe supply them and like transport them across the country, across borders. So it's like this cohesive um, relationship that they have, which has sustained both uh, both the parties. So I think it's pretty difficult to separate these two and they are very interdependent and you can't really uh, tackle one without tackling the other. So if one needs, if one wants to bring um, arms control measures in Northeast, they also need to understand and explore where this money is coming from, who is funding these groups and how are they sustaining themselves for over six decades and how is it even possible? And where are these groups located? So research shows that most of them operate out of Myanmar and parts of Chittagong Hills in Bangladesh. So there's small arms proliferation problem is closely related to the uh, proliferation of drugs in the region. So uh, all these, so uh, there was this paper by Binalakshmi Nepram that I recently read was that uh, the weapons that were found in Northeast uh, had links to US, to China, to Israel, to Russia, Romania, to so many of these countries. And it just like, you just wonder how, the, how did those weapons end up here? So there's this analogy concept of the illicit arms trade and how that is working with the insurgent groups and again, how they are working with the drug cartels. So it's this very interlinked web, which is definitely not very easy to unravel unless you bring experts and unless you be, bring people motivated in all these different fields, you bring them together, you, you work together. So it's not something that you can tackle on uh 
it's not something that you can tackle like from the top-down approach, I believe. You mm-hmm. need to be there and understand what's going on and why are people actually supporting it? Because I think I didn't mention this, but there are parallel governments going on in some of the regions in Northeast. So in, um, in Manipur, there is, of course, the Indian government who works there, who functions there, but also there is this parallel government of the Manipur insurgents. So people actually support them. And the only reason why is that they actually do their work. They do what they say. There is actual development, like there's roads being created, roads been built and like schools, uh, hospitals that actually are funded and like created by these insurgent groups while the Indian government has been neglecting that region for so many decades. Mm. So that explains why people support these groups. And, um, and yeah, why the AFSPA doesn't really work in this region. If it had to work, it had worked a long time back. But it's been like six, seven decades and it, it's not really taking us anywhere. And just, just creating this exclusion and this feeling of otherness that's just been going on. So if you want to tackle it, you have to see it from a different different perspective and not just like vote bank politics or you also need to see the regional and the like developmental politics that's been going on in that region and then correlated to, I guess, the problem of drugs in the golden triangle again the arms proliferation as well right interesting there's two points actually that that you brought up and one i think is about the beginning of the golden triangle and, and how that got started and i think um, um you know the american arms there and, and arms from china and it's kind of uh, different arms israel as well supplied from these different areas but i'm i'm pretty sure that i, I read uh, once don't quote me on this but i'm fairly certain that i read <laughs> that um the golden triangle indirectly is a result of America's fight against communist or Maoist China, um, and it kind of st- it got its beginnings from there, where the CIA essentially supplied uh, rebel groups against Mao with arms and with financing, and that financing was used to create these essentially poppy farms, right? And these poppy farms were then used to sell with the support of the United States, sell opiates. And that support and that finance then allowed them to fight against Maoist China. And I think that's where it kind of got its original beginnings. But now it's just become so integral in the region. And they, they're, they're one, I think, they're the largest supplier to China in terms of opiates um, anyway. And it's become so ingrained in society. And that's how it got, it got its beginning. So it was, it was yeah, indirectly or directly supported by the United States. Um, but also, if it is the second largest contributor to the economy of Myanmar, then you have to wonder how many regular people are just working on those farms and and it's part of their livelihood and part of their life. So if we're talking about bottom up, there's a mass amount of people who are very invested in this, who are just regular normal people. And I think that's one of the biggest issues and one of the hardest issues that's going to be tackled because you have to shift all of those people out of that. Well, it is an industry in in that regard into something different. And the economy over there is already terrible there's already you know there's massive issues right now in that region in terms of stability um as well so it really seems like a very overwhelming issue and mm-hmm. i think you're right when you're saying you need to bring in multiple scholars from different angles and different areas to kind of address and tackle these issues and you're right bottom up is probably the best way i mean war on drugs doesn't work as it's been proven time and time and time again so having a different approach is definitely necessary mm. tricky it's very overwhelming just talking about it actually <laughs> yes it it is very overwhelming because you 
can't really see it. I initially thought that just like removing the weapons from the region is enough, but it's never enough because weapons are created every second. You can't really just remove, let's say, a hundred of them, and then you, you will be sure that they won't show up again. So you definitely need people uh, from very different backgrounds. Hence, it's an interdisciplinary issue, and interdis we need interdisciplinary perspectives into this. But again, it all comes down to political will, whether from the West, whether them taking accountability, like you already mentioned, how it started, or just like sheer will of, do you want to solve this problem or do you want it to continue for your own benefit? Right. I see. That is a question for a lot of people <laughs> because a lot of people are benefiting from it, I assume. Yes. Okay. So on to scrap. Uh, we'll just have a little change of thought because obviously we're talking about disarmament and scraps focus is disarmament, right? Generalized disarmament, generalized and complete disarmament, reduction in arms, not complete reduction, but a general reduction in arms. And can you tell me a little bit about why you joined scrap? And we're just going back to that. Why did you join scrap? What do you hope to achieve with scrap? Is it a learning experience for you? Is it something a bit more deeper for you? What And what brought you to scrap as well? Yeah. Uh, well, before this, I was working and like, focusing more on uh, nuclear disarmament side of things. And so previously, I was trying to just understand the disarmament and nuclear testing on indigenous land. I was working very closely with the Marshallese youth regarding this and just understanding their perspective and, and the testimonies of how the unit dome is affecting them. Uh, and then I actually wanted to shift to conventional arms control uh, because, of course, I, I wanted to go deeper into my region uh, just to like, understand what's going on and also not just be very localized, but also understand it from like a worldview perspective. So I think that's how I got into scrap. Mm. Um, I attended a webinar last year um, where I was very interested and like I found it very interesting of the work that I've been doing. I saw their treaty, I got hooked, and I'm like, okay, I got, I'll just publicly send them an email and let's see if they have positions available. So that's how I got like linked to the organization. Mm -hmm. But um, once I joined, um, I had the uh, option of choosing which stream I would like to focus on. So right now, me and my colleagues are working on starting a conversation with with people from the arms industry so it's i'm probably sure it's going to be launched next month positively um so it's called in conversation with so we are hoping to have like at least three webinars during period of this year to, to invite people from the arms industry who have worked in the industry or who have been campaigning against it to just understand like their perspective. So I'm pretty sure they know the implication they had from their, them selling those arms to countries like, let's say Saudi and how it's impacting people in Yemen. So we just want to just engage in that conversation and of course hear their sides of things as well. And I guess be this neutral body to in understanding their perspective and only then we can come up with more conducive solutions. So we have lined up a few speakers and Few people who have, we have reached out to who are maybe interested in joining this conversation and so right now I'm with scrap I'm trying to focus on more conventional side of things um, and also like correlating it to uh, 
my work in the Northeast has been. I see. I see. Okay. I will definitely be in attendance for that webinar, by the way. That does sound very, <laughs> very interesting. Actually, I think one of our one of our peers um, asked me, I, I used to work um, as a consultant with, with someone in that area, asked me if I could reach out to them. Unfortunately, they weren't interested. Um, I've probably not for the pressure. For obvious reasons. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, but I, I'm, I'm actually very curious about it and um, I would definitely be in attendance. Okay, very nice. And I know you, you know Phil as well. Yes, uh, actually, Philip is the only reason why I joined. Because like, I'll have a work buddy, and you know, it's it's fun to have someone that you know when you're working mm. somewhere new. And he he just explained very briefly of what Scrap does and how we are, we have like new plans changing up. Do you want to join? Do you want you can start your own stream? It's all voluntary. Uh, it's based on your interests and your initiatives. So I think the independence in what I can do with scrap is what attracted me the most so yeah shout out to philip <laughs> well no it sounds fantastic and i'm glad you're i'm very glad you're here it sounds really interesting especially what you're aiming to do and, and what you will do it sounds fantastic so really really nice i i'm very excited now for the webinar and uh hopefully other people can watch it as well and i'll just give a quick shout out so people can find the information it's just on the scrap weapons website which is that you just scrap weapons um you can google it and it'll be there so you'll be able to find it <laughs> but very very nice Okay, thank you very much. That was a good answer. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> of course, it was a real pleasure. And I wish you the best of luck with your proposal across the chicken neck. Um, I, yes. I'm looking forward to hearing about how your presentation goes on the 21st of January. 21st, yeah. yes. Very exciting. Fantastic. Right, thank you.